Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of We Need to Talk. Today, I am joined by a woman of many talents. She is a performer, she's a diversity consultant, and she's a music educator, Miss Catherine Washington. Catherine, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me. Happy of to be here. Of course, <laughs> absolutely. So, uh, Catherine and I have known each other for a little while, but this is actually the first time we've like chatted, chatted. We've had yeah. conversations like on Facebook Messenger, but I'm so excited to have a conversation with you because I feel like we have so much in common. <laughs> yeah, likewise. It's been a long time. I was telling Melinda, um, I, our worlds have kind of been orbiting one another for a while and it's so nice to finally have crashed into yes. you. So yes. let's do it. Ah! So let's <laughs> talk a little bit about your background. I mean, I know you're a performer and I know you've gotten involved in activism, but let's talk a little bit about your performing background. Like, why did you choose music? Why did you choose musical <sighs> theater? Where did that passion come from? You know, these days I'm asking myself a lot of why did I choose that as well? Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> I, uh, so I grew up in, in North Carolina and my parents actually, so I'm a preacher's kid, um, but my parents were also artists. Like they met doing the whiz. They traveled around with North Carolina opera. So I grew up in a household where music was just all around me. And I think I did, I, my first musical I saw was The Sound of Music. And I was like, Ooh, Julie Andrews, what is this? I want to spin on hilltops. And then, you know, they got me to do my first play when I was eight and I was hooked. Um, I never thought that I would pursue it seriously. Uh, I wanted to be a doctor. Um, and I had a full ride scholarship for my first year of college. Uh, I was at an HBCU and I just, I wasn't happy. And my mom's like, why don't you audition for that school you were going to go to? And I was like, sure. And I got in and then it was like, I guess I'm moving to Los Angeles and doing this for real. And then just never kind of looked back because I feel very, very blessed to have been able to um, pursue my passion, what I love and make that into uh, a career. So it just kind of made sense when you sing and you play six instruments and, you know, you can, you can dance. <laughs> I so, love that. It's so funny you want to be a doctor because I did want to be a pediatrician and I hate math. So I was like, well, this isn't going to happen. But I always just wanted to help kids. And so I eventually, I also did music education and teaching music performing arts school and teaching kids. I was like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do because the whole math thing was just not, was my friend not you know it's funny math well, i love math and okay, math is so the music <laughs> see well all right should i see myself I know, there, there, that or... goes. <laughs> <laughs> music is math for me which is so it, it, yeah. it's what told me i i loved i told myself for the longest time you're not a creative you just like do this which we'll get into is so silly but like i also have found a way that might what drew me to wanting to be a doctor was the passion of helping people and yeah. you realize that like that's a lot of school and a lot of money and um I'll go I'll go a different route that's <laughs> so <laughs> true though I mean when you look at like the trajectory of medical school and being a doctor I'm like this is like 12 years and then so I have a friend she's also a black female she's she's an OBGYN and I was like thank you for going into this field because that's another yes. conversation mm-hmm. but um when she told me, cause she was in Chicago when I was in Chicago, she was like, yeah, I just, it's kind of like a lottery figuring out where you go. I was like, Oh no, I don't get mm-hmm. to choose where I am. No, I'm so glad. Uh-uh. I, I would have been mad. I'm like, you're going to send me where? Gonna send me where? No, ma'am. No, Poughkeepsie? thank you. I'm good. I'm Poughkeepsie. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's so funny. Okay. So as a performer, you know, you know, people always are like, Oh, you bring a race into everything. However, a race is a part of my life because it applies. 
again, we can have conversations about so many things, but as a black female, what has your experience been in terms of performing? You know, how has it been a positive? How has it been a negative? How have you managed to navigate in a career that really is a white dominated space? You know, your personal experience. My goodness. Um, I love this question. I've, I've been reflecting on this more and more. The, the ways in which it's been a positive. I, um, I think that because you don't often see a lot of people that look like you, um, because they're not often doing shows that require a lot of people that look like us, I quickly had to find this kind of like self-confidence and see myself as, you know, an individual and not really being able to compare myself to other people. Right. So I thought. (laughs) Um, And so I think that, you know, from the time I, I left school, I just kind of had this security in, okay, I am who I am. This is what I have to offer. I don't need to belt like that person. I'm not in competition with other black women that I see at auditions. And I think that I um, have always been on this journey of just trying to guide myself based upon what feels authentic to me as an artist. So for a musical theater performer, usually you go to auditions and you see girls and they're like A-line dresses and their heels. And I'm like, I'm in my boots and my jeans and my fro is big. And 80% of my audition song or guy, my audition book or guy songs. I just kind of do what I want in the audition room. And I confuse people. And I started saying that I confuse people. Yeah. So that's like been a plus of like really being able to find like, ways to not fit a mold um i think i've seen uh, some barriers shift i won't say broken down I, I did a production of the musical once i think two years ago and uh for those of you who don't know once is a musical based upon this uh indie film that came out about 10 years ago and it's I can't set in... it was that long ago but that's I, I know also another conversation time is going with us but yeah <laughs> We're not aging. We're we're gonna look this young forever. It's fine. Absolutely. Um, But once the musical, um, in it, all of the actors have to play instruments and and move, and they're Irish or they're from the Czech Republic. I booked the show, and I found out that I am the first Black woman not only to ever play this role, uh, the role of Reza, but to ever do a production of Once ever. I always wanted to be the first Black woman to do something. So that's you know cool things like that. How have it been a has it been a hindrance? Um, I probably didn't realize this as strongly until we had this opportunity, this forced stop over the past year because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. It's the first time in 13 years, I moved to LA 13 years ago, that I had the opportunity to kind of stop and sit and reflect on all of the nonsense that I've had to endure over the past 13 years. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know if I wanted anything to do with this industry anymore Mm -hmm. because I realized that I had been living kind of two separate versions of myself. There's the version of me within these predominantly white spaces that can be as outspoken as I can be but not making white people uncomfortable Mm -hmm. or not jeopardizing my money. And which me, which looks like, a white director touching your hair on stage in front of everybody. And you're like, I can't, if I say something right now, then it's a whole thing and I've embarrassed you. And it's, you know, so, but I can wear my Trayvon Martin hoodie and I can wear my African head wrap and I can kind of cut my eyes at people whenever they're making jokes about blood diamonds. Why? But so there's that version of me. And then there's a version of me outside of these spaces that is so unapologetically black. Like, yeah, you're my friend on social media. You see (laughs) 
I don't really believe in pacifying my feelings. Right, and right. so I had, I had accepted these two separate versions of myself, never believing that they could fully merge. Mm. And I didn't know that I'd done that. And whenever I had the time to stop and, and realize that, didn't really sit with myself well. Yeah. Through um, the, you know, the gift that is prayer and therapy. Right. I now um, am back on, on a plane where I realize I'm, I can't integrate and be myself, all of myself, all of the time. And that's yeah. the way that we have to move through the world moving forward. There is no other choice. And I hope you don't like it, you know? It's interesting that people don't realize how common it is. I would say even more so for black women to have to figure that out, to have to figure out how to stay true to yourself, but also stand up for yourself, but also make people feel comfortable, but also not allow people to walk on you, but also protect, mm-hmm. like it's just this checklist that is so unbelievably exhausting because you're right. You don't, for taking musical theater, for example, I mean, I can go back and talk about conversations that I've had with directors you know I did a production of dream girls and I remember he was like can you guys black it up a little and I was like okay <sighs> if nobody's gonna say anything am I gonna be the one that says anything like or are, yeah. or are we all gonna put our job like oh that made me so upset I can think about times in college where like I wasn't even in the production but I was a part of the theater program and they asked me to come and be a part of a performance because they needed to have me on stage for diversity I'm sorry. I was used as a prop so like yeah. in those moments it's like we have to think about all of the repercussions and the consequences of just simply standing up for ourselves mm-hmm. and protect, mm-hmm. but also protecting our reputation, not being yeah. put into these stereotypes, you know, of being the angry black woman. But it's like, <laughs> if the people were saying things to you as much as y'all are saying to us, you would be angry too. It's like, I time. am angry. I, I am. am angry because of all of the crap that you're constantly saying to us. Yeah. So as a performer, I feel like it's almost enhanced a little bit because being an independent contractor being an independent artist being a like we're already like struggling to make a living so like we don't want to jeopardize that in any way shape or form so having to constantly think about those things in those spaces is really debilitating but I do think that I've gotten to the point as well where I'm like if I I just don't care I don't care I can't can't. I can't, I can't. That caring about that was for like, you know, my twenties and now I'm through. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, you still home. look 20 girls. So that's so all that much. matters. <laughs> um, so what, I, what I realize has been the, the trickiest part is, um, is not about like knowing what to say in the moment. It's about recognizing that there is like how to go about saying something like this example of the director from, from my production of once touching my hair and the moment I'm just like, I was like, Haha, no, no, no. It wasn't until I got home that I was like, wait a second. And then you're angry with yourself, yeah. but that's not something that you should have to carry because you're like, that's not even who I am. And how right. did I, because you're surviving right. or that like your brain just can't quite catch up as much. And there's that whole journey of like self-diet or like self-depreciation that can like happen as a byproduct yes. of this white supremacist society that we yeah. endure. And I, you know, I've been reading a lot about the term imposter syndrome, right? How mm. I, I guess that was only really ever supposed to apply to black women yeah. because I think a lot about what is the level of confidence, the level of like self-love that I would be able to maintain on a regular daily basis if I didn't have all these other messages and people telling me, you ain't nothing. Right. You're not supposed to love yourself. It's like, yeah. it's the complete opposite of other people right. who are like, I just don't love my, 
trust myself. It's like, we would. If y'all would just leave us alone, just we would be fine. <laughs> just leave us alone. And that's, it's so funny when I go back, I'm like, if you look historically, Black people have always been minding their own damn business. <laughs> that's it. Always. <laughs> we don't care about y'all over there we in your little world. We only want to be left alone. I mean, I, I started watching this show on Amazon Prime and then I quickly stopped because it was unbelievably triggering. Did you, have you seen them? Oh, I refuse. I should have refused, but I did I give refuse. it a couple of episodes and I said, you know what? I want to support black people, but I can't, I can't support mm-hmm. this right now. And not because, not because I don't want to support black people. Obviously I want to support any form of our story to be of told. Course. I'm a little exhausted by some, like I don't need another slavery movie. No, nobody needs another slavery movie. Nobody. To be clear, yeah. can I say that here? Yes. You don't need any. No, thank you. Goodbye. We don't, <laughs> we don't, we just don't. But that, the people that need to actually see that show will never watch it. And 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 that's what's upsetting to me is that we are making this content that to an extent does need to be seen, but the people that need to watch it are never going to. But the thing about that is that, you know, it, it shines a light on white supremacy in the 50s and 60s, which I think people don't realize was not that long ago, was in the lifetime of my parents. They lived through mm-hmm. all of this, right? They think yeah. that the only thing that happened to Black people was slavery. And that's like stop (laughs) just please stop Mm. after 1865 everything was not just fine and dandy but Mm -hmm. the thing that is was horrifying about it was how realistic it was one but two black people it's basically a black family moved into an all-white neighborhood right Mm -hmm. and these white people felt immediately threatened for no reason no reason and that's my whole thing is like they started bothering them they started just doing all these things to them to try to run them out of the neighborhood when that black family did nothing all they did was exist. And that's the problem that is so frustrating is that black people simply existing bothers people. You know, I just had a conversation with um, someone who's tried to say, you know, it, people need to, you know, on both sides just need to have a conversation, which I'm fully in agreement with. I think the more people that have conversations, the more people will start to understand there could be a little bit of shift in understanding. One of the things that this person said, was that, you know, when, when a cop stops somebody, you know, and, and, and it, let's say there's a black guy in the car, the black guy is scared. And I was like, yes, he's like, but the cop is also scared too. And I said, let me stop you there. Let me stop you there. Uh, the cop's fear is irrational. Uh-huh. He is afraid of our skin color. We're afraid because uh-huh. we think that we're going to die and they have a gun. So this uh-huh. whole perception and this whole attitude towards black people and just the color of our skin i mean it goes back to the beginning of time but we always just wanted to be left alone that's it i just kind of live yeah um and i think you were just you were just saying about these these conversations that we're having like i absolutely agree i think that um it's the only way for like cross-pollination to happen you know of like of ideas and like shared understanding I also am a believer that um I don't want black people to feel obligated to um love people who are actively engaged in their impression right and so it's you know it's a matter of finding that balance of yes these conversations should happen and like who should be having these conversations with and with and what do those conversations look like and with who you know because right. there is are you familiar with this idea of like the spectrum of allies yes, yes i yes, like yes, yes, yeah, yeah yeah, yeah. I, sure. 
I've been watching a lot of, uh, I'm going to plug here, uh, The Next Question, hosted by Austin <laughs> Channing Brown, Chichi Oakley. Love her, love her. Oh my God, so good. And they had Andre Henry on, and he was talking about the spectrum of allies. And so, you know, all the way over here, you've got like your Richard Spencers, your David Dukes. And then on the opposite end, you've got like the leading, like black thought leaders and activists. And so you've got passive, I mean, active oppressors, passive oppressors, neutrals, passive supporters, and then, you know, all the way back over here. Mm-hmm. And so it's about targeting like, who, where do you fall in the spectrum? And then where is it your responsibility to be targeting and talking to people in the Mm. spectrum? Because if you enjoy engaging with like passive oppressors who are not the people who are going to burn the cross, but are going to be like, well, you know, I don't, is it my responsibility to stop people to burn the cross? It's like those people can be your most potent witnesses if you can reach them. But I'm not trying to talk to the passive oppressors. I'm trying to reach my white liberal friends who are the passive supporters who are like, we support you. We're with you. Here's your black box. But then they still allow their racist family members to comment on all of their Facebook threads. Those are the people that are worst. Exactly. Uh, To me, exactly. If you just don't like me because I'm black, whatever. I don't, I'm not going to talk to you. We have nothing in common. Like it's just not going to change. But if you call yourself an ally, you call yourself an advocate, but you are so afraid of offending your (laughs) racist aunt that just said, oh, you still have a colored friend or whatever. And you don't call her out on that. I'm just, I'm sure that's happened. It hasn't happened to me, but I'm just like, you know, then you are actually worse. You are the problem. It's performative. Yeah. It's your your only goal is to separate yourself from the bad whites over there. You're trying to get off this like spectrum of like whiteness that you can't escape. You are on that spectrum and you need to hold yourself accountable. I don't want you posting all these articles um, and hashtags, you know, the articles that you don't read. <laughs> I don't want you read the title and you're like, oh, this is good. This will make me look right, good. This yeah. is cool. Right. I don't want to see you wearing a safety pen to tell me you're an ally. I want you to walk the walk or, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to care about this, but like, we all have that personal responsibility, um, a moral obligation and a commitment to see through every single day. And what does that look like for you and commit to that? And if it doesn't look like what it looks like to me, that's fine. But let's be intellectually honest with one another. Yes. Let's not say, Oh my God, like I really support you. It's like, you're scared of your parents. Wow. Like, no. I, if, if this is what support looks like, I'm good. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think, and I've talked about this on the show before, but, Somebody posted on on Facebook, or maybe it was Twitter, but it was so well thought out and well explained about the difference between how white people and black people, or just people of color in general, approach uncomfortable situations. And white people in general have been taught not to have confrontation whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So when anything makes them uncomfortable, they're taught to just kind of retreat and not deal with the situation because they're taught to keep the peace, which is so funny to me. But so when you, as a person of color, or specifically, I'm going to say black women, because that's what we are. And that's how we obviously approach everything. So let's say a black woman brings up a problem to a white person. And the reason that they become the victim is because, and they think that you're the aggressor. They think that you're being this to that when you're the one that offended them or whatever. The reason they respond that way is because they've never been taught how to deal with conflict. Mm -hmm. So even as a black woman, I'm just communicating with you what the issue is and how to solve the problem or what you need to do. But you automatically see a red flag, like, oh my God, why are you yelling at me? Aggressive. Oh my God, I didn't do anything. But it's like, I'm just talking to you, first of all. 
Yeah. Thank you. But like, could you like say it nicer? Right, exactly. (laughs) And so when it comes to talking to their white parents or their white aunts or their white friends that are clearly racist, they don't know how to deal with that conflict because they've never been taught how. So it makes them uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and they would rather keep the peace than worry about offending them when they don't realize they are offending every Black person that they claim to be friends with by not standing up to them. Every single time. And they're doing themselves a disservice in the process because like, I mean, conflict resolution is something that we should all, you know, uh, learn how to manage and be able to clearly articulate what our needs are. Um, You know, being open to receiving what other people's needs are. It's like, you can't say like, say it to me nicer. It's like the issue is not how I'm saying it. It, The issue is that I'm saying it. And that's the problem. And uh, um, (laughs) we all have to be adults. We've all got to be adults here. And if I, you know, I think that getting uncomfortable is kind of where you're supposed to be. I think that if people are searching for comfort, at least as it relates to any sort of anti-racism work, if you're comfortable, you're probably not doing the work. Like I have to allow myself to get uncomfortable every day because otherwise I, you just get complacent. And what is on the other side of that is learning something, which is Mm -hmm. extremely exciting because I want to continue to learn and to grow and also the opportunity to be a better human. Yes. The opportunity to be a better human in this world for other humans, the people that you truly claim to love and to care about and these, these values, um, I, I don't understand what is so scary about going down that path, except, you know. Um, the reward is greater than the risk. Yeah, every time. Plain and simple. It is. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your activism. When did you really start getting involved? When did you form Hope Collective? Like, talk about all of that. Okay, so I was thinking a lot about this, and I'm like, what has this trajectory been? I'm I'm going to jump all the way back to 23 um, right. when I started dating my now husband Zach. Um, he is. Wait, um, how long have you been married? I've been oh, um, because I'm I'm old too in that sense. I'm just making just, <laughs> I'm I just this back. total digression because I just learned what like some terms were that are on like online dating, and I've been with my husband since I was 23. So and we were 25, and I'm like, what is this online dating? Like I just oh world. my goodness oh right I'm just like I've never seen a Tinder I like I, I have my friends I'm just like let me see your app. what does it look like how does never. it missed all of that I did a little so okay cupid we've so we've been together for eight years okay we've been married I think almost four he's gonna hear this and he's gonna look at me like really shake his head. he's the one who knows all the numbers and I'm like but still eight what? years is a yeah. long time like you you dodged a lot of those bullets. I, and and thankfully, but also lots of the bullets, like the call was coming from inside the house, you know? Um, it's, and as my, my husband, audience members, my husband is a white man from Montana. Um, lovely, lovely person, lovely, also a preacher's kid, but you don't know what you don't know. Yes. And so uh, everyone looks at interracial relationships and is like, oh my goodness, you guys are the future. And I'm just like, that's really not how that works. Um, <laughs> 
you can't, you can't um, copulate your way out of racism. Like that's just not how the world is set up. We will talk about that. I didn't want to digress, but I was just like, oh, she's been with her husband as much long as I have. But yeah, like, yeah, I do yeah. want to go back to that. But oh, yes, right. continue yes. your trajectory so, for activism. When we first started meeting at 23 years old, we it was this was around the time of the Ferguson uprising and but I think like slightly, slightly before. And I remember we built this pillow fort and we're sitting there and we're talking, we're laughing and I don't remember where it came from. And all of a sudden I said, I just feel like if I were white, I'd be pretty. Mm. And I caught myself, no idea where that thought lived, never thought it to myself, never had a problem with my face. I was like, my face is fine. Like it's, you know, it's a good face. Like she's gorgeous I, by the way, I, you guys you. cannot see her. She's <laughs> absolutely beautiful, but keep going. I, I've been there, so yeah. burst out crying because I one here's this white man looking at me like well, I don't know what to do with this, but two I did not know where that came from, wow. and that is what I define as kind of my my moment of awakening. I'm really grateful that you know the self awareness was there for me to be able to realize it's not that you hate yourself. Maybe there's a little part of that, but really what this is is who put this thought here. How did this get in here? And baby girl, I think it's time for you as an adult to start unpacking what does your blackness mean to you? How are you viewed in relation to that? What is really going on out here in the world? And that sent me down this journey of self-discovery, of self-love, of falling Mm. in love with my culture and my people. And um, this was around the same time as the Ferguson uprising. And I'm I'm staying up till like one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, watching the live Twitter feeds and saying, what is going on? We've been told that this stuff is over and like we've known that that's not been the case, but I'm right. seeing that like, how are we militarizing against our own people? So I've been on this journey of at least talking about race, being very vocally talking to white people about race and really just for the sake of my own survival for years now. But the activism, activism part of it didn't really start up until say the past two, three years of realizing that there's a responsibility to do more um, because we all have a responsibility to do more. I occupying predominantly white spaces and just talking to white people about racism as it relates to entertainment is just not enough. I actually, I saw a post um, yesterday that I pulled a quote from, uh, there's this journalist called Slauson Girl, Everyone go follow her on, on Instagram. She wrote, <laughs> liberal white academia is ruling the conversation about racism and white mm. supremacy. It gives people talking points while my people are still getting murdered by police and each other, while you are online listening to people string nice sentences together to mentally massage you. What's the plan to stop this genocide against my people? And as a journalist, but a concerned, involved community member, this message is also to myself. And that hit me and I'm just like, yes, wow. that is literally why I started doing this work. Um, I, you know, I started getting more involved. I was working with Mutual Aid LA and I was following, finding volunteer opportunities um, wherever I could. And especially once the pandemic started, um, I got hardcore into organizing work. Um, the whole collective kind of was birthed from that. Um, I started working with this group that was organizing against Amazon and 
then from that, we started pulling out, um, finding these cases of pregnant women that were being discriminated against at Amazon and like doing mm. work for that and just finding that I was hopping kind of from like collective to collective and with my skill set working in production that I always thought didn't translate outside of the entertainment industry. Turns out mama's a really good organizer <laughs> because she loves, she loves, she, I mean, organization. I love being able to be in a position to connect other activists and organizers with the tangible resources that they need. And as I've seen it here in Los Angeles, lots of folks within the movement, it's a lot of like, Hey, there's something going on. We've got like a week or two, we'll toss it together and like, and people will be there and we'll put out the news. And that is like, absolutely um, effective in lots of ways, but I've through the whole collective, Emily, my business partner, and I have been showing people what intentional planning looks like and taking your time and writing things down and really intentional community building that it's not just about the action, the event that that lead up process allows you to really make and establish connections with your community as a large, as a whole and see what it's like to be in collaboration with other people, which can be tricky, but it's necessary because again, our fates are hinged to one another and we can't just all be out here working in our own little pockets. Like we're, smarter not harder yeah is kind of my philosophy so yeah that's that's essentially what the whole collective does did i answer the question you did you did <laughs> you're so funny i'm the same way whenever i do interviews or have interviews i'm like i really hope i answer your question because i just thought it <laughs> but you completely did and I, I love that what fueled you to want to start this i will say though i almost wish i, I love organizations obviously like don't get me wrong I almost wish there just wasn't a need to have to always have to start something in order to make a difference because we should <sighs> still be trying to make a difference. And, and, and to kind of capitalizing on that point, when you said that you were the first black person to be cast in that show, I'm tired of us being firsts. Uh-huh. It's 2021. We're still having black firsts. Uh-huh. That's exhausting. Now it's incredible. You're making history. I love people that make history. I love, especially when it's people of color and specifically black women that make history. But the fact that we are still having firsts is crazy. That's crazy. When's the last time a white person was the first to do like, something? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the first to actually break through, like, <laughs> anti- <laughs> like through the white. I don't know. I don't know. I, and that's what's it's crazy been a while. to me. And so when people like look at things like white privilege and opportunities, like the fact that we're still having first should show you. And it's not because black people are lazy. It is not because people of color aren't trying. It's because you finally decided, okay, we're going to let you go through. Yeah, yeah. I guess we'll open this gate, but only if I mean we've got space in the club for two. We got two. We got two black people out there. Girl, we'll take uh, that one. And uh, no, you're too dark. Let's take it's this like one. When Obama here. became president, people thought that racism was eradicated. It's like no, no, no. Racism actually is coming to a head right now because everybody is showing their whole ass right oh, now we because we have it. a black president. The one thing about like the need to start the whole collective and like us realizing that what was something different that we could try to offer, not that this isn't already happening, but for example, so we helped organize a direct action in DC last year and mm-hmm. 
through, even though I do not live there, I live in Los Angeles. My business partner, Emily, lives in Ohio. Um, we helped uh, organize this, this direct action. And there's a group there called the Palm Collective. And it's a grouping of like 67 different organizations wow. that work together and have built power and are actually like pushing, pushing and pushing and keeping applying that pressure. And I was like, that's something that I would hope that the Hope Collective can grow into because it's yeah. never, the, the goal is not for us to build something new. Like what's the saying? It's like, you don't need to build it. It already exists. Yeah. It's the same as you don't need to be a voice for the voiceless, just pass the microphone. And so for us recognizing, okay, if I could go and do this thing in DC and I'm working with my business partner who doesn't even live here, where's the need of my own community what am i what am i doing here as it relates to my own city and like in my own neck of the woods and there are people who've been doing incredible work for decades decades longer than i've uh, what i've been doing this for like eight years people have been doing this work and they deserve our support and our amplification yes. and our dollars and our time and our devotion and that's what the hope collective is seeking to do not to do anything other than you know just kind of linking these people like you should be working with them and how can we boost your efforts and, and get people to care and like redirect this is the longest i've talked about myself <laughs> in like the past year and it's kind of weird but it's been it's been nice to not have it be especially as a performer it's like usually it's you know, what am I going to do and how am I going to get right. friends? That's never been how it's <laughs> supposed to be anyway. Like, how can I direct people to who they should be listening to? Because um, anything I say here, Angela Davis has probably said it 10 times better than me. <laughs> but it's good to reiterate. And I think that yeah. also within our community as a whole, we still have not gotten to the point where we realize how powerful we are and, and what yeah. we have the ability to do. So when we're all uplifting each other specifically with black owned businesses, with, you know, things like the Hope Collective, with different organizations, like we can make a huge difference. We just have to recognize our power. We're getting there. Mm. We're not there we yet. Are. But, you know, when you've been oppressed for 400 years and be t told that you're not worth anything, you have no value and you have situations constantly that show that people think that mm -hmm. black lives don't matter. Why would you try? You know, I get it. I get it. But we uh, have, we got to We got to move forward. We just got to push. We do. I've been saying this this past year and last year, it's supposed to be last year, but especially this past year is all about escaping the white gaze, you know, mm. not doing things that are for the sake of informing white people about my perspective or even want like worrying about will they get it no get into it because whenever i'm not thinking about y'all like it's the same way that tony morrison likes to write she or like to write she said you know she would she created stories where whiteness was periphery yeah. and i'm like that is how i live my life you know until my husband comes home but that's how i live my, you know my life and i'm like that's how i think that that is where i'm at right now with guiding all of my intentions on what is done whenever we remove whiteness from the equation and focus on building and supporting and just like the love because there's so much there's so much happening over here and it's little echo chambers of transformation yeah. you know I think yeah. I think we are getting there for sure how do you manage to navigate your pro-blackness while being in an interracial relationship, because I know, and I get it all the time. And it, you know, especially just, you know, having a following and having, you know, fans or people follow you online and stuff and make comments like, well, if you're this, you know, your husband's wife and you know what I mean? But how have you managed to navigate that? Because I get so annoyed by people thinking that you can't be pro-black and be in an interracial relationship. I fell in love with who I fell in love. And that's just my business. That has nothing to do with my identity. And you're also saying that, my husband being white 
is what my identity is as well. And it's not. And that's BS. You're literally saying that who I am uh-huh. with controls who I am. I could go off on this, but I need to uh-huh. I know you can. I know you can. It's so how have you mean- managed to navigate that? Because this isn't about me right now. <laughs> Really, Melinda, it's that part that you just said where you realize that people making these statements are reducing your identity down to a black woman with a white man. And we don't do that with everyone else. We don't. We'll make little cute jokes about like, oh, you know, black men ain't really been checking for black women since, I don't know, 1993, which is also not true. You know, I think like black love is beautiful. You know, I wish I could have used hashtag black love for like my wedding photos. Didn't quite apply, you know, half and half. But I, I really, I had to get over that early on realizing that like people for some reason will insist on diminishing my blackness, my entirety of my being and my and my identity and how proudly I claim it simply because of this. If they'll do this because I'm married, married to a white man without the white man in the picture, they're going to do it because of something else. Yes. That is literally the struggle that is being a black woman. And mm-hmm. so I have to pay it. No, never mind. And it doesn't happen, you know, as much. The navigating of the stuff with like the family, having white in-laws is a lot harder than the outside messaging. But like, I remember, so, you know, occasionally I'll see like white guys or black guys in public just kind of look at me and shake their head. And I'm like, what? What? What are you shaking your head at? You know, you're a white girlfriend. What are you talking about? Oh my gosh. But Um, seriously, but also it's like a, I've gotten the like, oh, you know, you're playing for the wrong team or why'd you do? It's like, where were you? Yeah. Where were you? Weren't you? Here. you weren't not around. liking me. You, you you exactly. You weren't around. And if you were, you did not like me. Mm-hmm. But now that you have a you have a problem with, you know, this is interesting. I saw a TikTok and I'm really curious your thoughts on this because mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this girl. She's an Asian American woman. And she said, Can we talk about how our men of color and white women are the same? The same. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, I've seen and this. And I, uh-huh. it, it snatched me. It snatched me because I was like, oh. And when she explained it, it was so clear because there is this—I don't even know the right word—but the comparison was so spot on, just in how black women are treated when it comes to white women, when it comes to to black men. I'm just because that's our mm-hmm. our community. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, that is such an. <laughs> Exactly. And whenever you have, and I love black down. men. I, do, I want to make that oh. clear. I love black men. My father is a black man. I have black brothers. You know, like I love black men. I just, like, yeah, I just love them in dating. general. I see them and I'm like, hi. Right. Hey. right. I mean, give me a Michael B. Jordan any day of the week. But I, you know what I mean. But when she said that, in the experiences I've had and in the responses that I've had to being in an interracial relationship or just being a black woman in general my interactions with black men and white women have on base pretty much been similar. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and also I'm going to toss cis, uh, cis gay men and white gay men in there as well. Mm-hmm. Like those have been the three, those are the three groups that she was talking about and it's been fairly identical, but having it broken down, realizing that whenever you are one step down from the majority class and you're just wanting to assume that power and therefore you can't recognize that you still 
have privilege. You're literally just one step away. And so actually you benefit from crapping on us down here. Mm -hmm. Whenever you recognize that, and I'm just like, well, I'm just not, whenever this comes up, I just know not to pay this. No, never mind. Because this is nonsense. I don't get this from my sisters. I don't get this from my queer community. I don't get Like, this is something entirely different. And so- It's the oppressed finding a way to be oppressors so that they can survive. Yeah, and I'm like, are we all abolitionists? What's happening here? <laughs> I'm gonna need you to go read a little more. Yeah, it's um, it was definitely tricky earlier on, but mm-hmm. I, I would also credit that more to being on the 23 years yeah. old and yeah, like being yeah. on this journey of my blackness while also <laughs> someone witnessing that. And also that meant that he was going to have to um get a crash course in the things that he did not know as well. And um there have been moments that I'm sure have not felt very comfortable for him being with me, but I can't be less of myself. If I can't be less of myself whenever I'm in those performance spaces, yeah. I can't be less of myself at home. I can't be less of myself when I'm with myself. I have to be my full, full self. Yes. Yes. And, um, you know, he likes it. And the people who don't understand the dynamic, I don't really care. I don't really care because <laughs> right. I'm not going to be ashamed of my life. My love, Amen. I know the year with me and my little head wrap and my gap in my teeth and my dark cocoa skin, like any less black. No, you got to own it. Cause black, your black is beautiful. It. You got to own yeah. it. Yeah, it is. It is. It? Amen. <laughs> so let's talk about this event that you have coming yes, up please. and how people can get involved and what it is and what's it about and why you decided to do it now. Okay. All right. So this event that we have coming up, May 2nd, 2021, Pan Pacific Park, 12 p.m. We're having a rally and a march titled Black Women, period. The idea of this, I was brought in to um, lend support and then it turns out it was at the planning stages. And so, you know, I just kind of swooped, swooped in with like my my eye for for detail and we've really grown this thing Realizing that as Black women, we are often hearing, you know, protect Black women, listen to Black women. Yeah. From the mouths of anyone other than Black women. (laughs) (laughs) You know, other people are speaking for us often. It's almost like whenever we say it, they can't handle it. Yeah. Because it's too much of a mirror. And in the same way that like those Black squares this past summer made me roll my eyes. I'm just like, I want to believe the intention is good, but like, what does this even mean? Like, right. who started this? Where did it come from? What is this doing? Right. It's like in the, <laughs> in the same way that like some people, you know, hashtag Black Lives Matter. I'm just like, you don't really mean that. I feel this, I feel extremely similarly whenever I see hashtag protect Black women because you can't even seem to do that lots of times these people with the Black women in their lives. Mm-hmm. And so the idea was how to how to take that and make that more than just a hashtag. How do we make this a lived reality? How do we come together and call in our community and in a way that, that we could create a space that promotes healing and harmony, but also giving people targeted calls to action. So when they walk away from this event on May 5th, from all these different topics that disproportionately affect black women. So poverty and houselessness, um, access to mental mental health care, um, you know, violence, disproportionate um, rates of violence and Mm -hmm. and all of these different areas, the ways that we are policed within the education system. I would like, how can we leave people 
with tangible and targeted calls to action so that no matter where you exist in the world, whether you're an educator or you're a doctor or you're an artist, you can walk away and say, okay, I heard something today and now I know where I need to go, where the need is and where I can immediately lock in and support. On top of that, we also wanted to make sure that um, and bringing ourselves together that we're bringing in the community and, and finding a way to uplift where the need is. And so we are um, fundraising for Care Walk, which is a mutual aid um, organization here. And they, I guess we're kind of partly inspired by their mission of they go where the need is. And so they provide like safety gear for, for, um, for protesters. They've started a community garden. They do food giveaways. They do so many different things. And because they do so much for the community, we knew that we wanted to boost them and we don't want to take any dollars. We don't need to fundraise for our efforts. We just yeah. need to plan this thing. So where can we direct people and say, Hey, go and give them your money because they are doing the work that we aren't committing to doing on a regular basis. And so we are we are so excited about this event, um, really just wanting to center and uplift and amplify Black women and also our genderqueer comrades because not all people who experience anti-Black misogyny identify as women. And so right. making sure that that is also... Um, on our radar in, in terms of, of messaging. And um, I'm really excited. We're splicing in performances around our speakers. We haven't quite announced our speakers yet. Um, there is one that I would, I do want to shout out because she is confirmed. Her name is Kiana Selena and she works with the Coalition for Community Control over the Police. Um, nice. She's a grassroots organizer and she does incredible work and she works with impact families who, um, have, you know, experienced loss and trauma due to police brutality and social injustice. Mike, um, Kiana right now is doing really great work. Um, specifically, I want to shout out um, for people who aren't aware of this, Mike Keona Johnson. Um, she has been working with her family. Mike Keona Johnson was, oh, I'm going to get emotional. Mm. A 23-year-old mother of two mm. who went missing last September um, around 96 and Gramercy, her body was found in the backseat of her car about a week later. And even though the cause of her death is listed as undetermined pending investigation, the LAPD has closed this case for not enough leads. And, you know, statistically, like Black women are murdered every eight hours in the U.S. Wow. Every eight mm -hmm. hours. It's the leading cause of death for Black women and girls ages 15 to 24. And hmm. our cases go uninvestigated or unsolved because police they departments, they don't, they don't care. They, don't they care. do not care. And yep. so I just wanted to make sure that I spoke on Kiana and my Kiana's case. Please, if you're not familiar with it, please, please, please go look up and, and do more of this. And, and just be inform yourselves and figure out how um, you can go to the Mike Yona Johnson Foundation on Instagram uh, to find out more. I know her family is going to need a lot of support from us financially, just our attention on there, making calls for the LAPD to yeah. open back up that case. And um, reasons like that are the reasons why we're doing this, because we will not let ourselves go quietly into the dark. That's we why not. we say Black Lives Matter, because yeah. this country has yet to show that they value Black lives in any way, shape, or form. So this yeah. is why this is important. Thank yeah. you so much, Catherine. Let everybody know where they can follow you and where they can um, make sure they get the information for the event. 
Yes, for the event, you can follow me on Instagram at Daughter of Asada, like Asada Shakur. That's Daughter of Asada on Instagram. And also uh, the Hope Collective is at Let's Make Hope on Instagram and also on Twitter, uh, Let's Make Hope 20 or at KWashing3. You should probably just find me on Instagram. It's easier. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Make sure you follow her in the Hope Collective and we'll post all the information for the event on May 2nd. Catherine, thank you so much for chatting with me. It was a pleasure. We could probably talk for three and a half hours, I'm sure. We will. (laughs) We will. We're going to get coffee now that we're hopefully inching out of this pandemic. So Uh 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 I'm double vaccinated, girl. Get at me. Yes, same, same, same. (laughs) (laughs) And to the listeners, make sure you subscribe to We Need to Talk and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye.